0: and of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, everybody. How are you? Kind of average, huh? You guys need to wake up a little bit. Actually, uh, what Kristen said is true. You know, it's hard to remember, like, all the faces and come up with fresh people to read. Am I on? Okay. Um, and... Uh, And so I do look at my social media feed for faces. So you might want to unfriend me from Instagram or uh, Facebook if this is like your idea of like the worst panicky thing. You can tell me no. Plenty of people do as well. So um, if you don't know me, my name's Britt. I serve here at Sunridge as the lead pastor. And, um, you know, a couple of months ago, Cindy and I rented a movie. And uh, the title was My Old Lady. No offense here. But it had Maggie Smith in it, uh, Kevin Kline, and Kristen Scott Thomas. Anyone seen that movie? It's a great movie. Uh, we really loved it. We were into it, uh, but we couldn't understand what was going on as we started to watch it. I mean, we really liked what we were seeing, but um, we didn't know how they got there. You know, it seemed like something was left out because It was. Because Amazon Prime, from whom I rented it, started the movie for some reason like in the middle of the movie. So it was like 40 minutes in, so it's no wonder we were confused. So we had to rewind all the way back and go back to the beginning because context is everything, right? And so today, we are kicking off a series. Did you see what I just did there? Yeah. Kicking off a series. Um <laughs> How many of you believe the Dolphins are going to win the Super Bowl today? (laughs) Patricia, thank you. Um, Actually, the Dolphins have not won a Super Bowl since 1972 and 73, but um, there's always next year, right? How many of you are Chiefs fans? You're thinking the Chiefs are going to win today? Mahomes is going to come through. How many of you are Eagles fans? Eagles are going to do it. Yeah, I kind of think that's what's going to happen too. Even though for some reason I was telling somebody, I hate the Eagles. Uh, except for the movie that Mark Wahlberg was in, Invincible, right? So anyway, um, back to the story here. Most of you have heard of Moses, I'm sure, even if it's the Disney version, right? I mean, you might picture Moses even as the actors that have portrayed, portrayed him over the years, Charlton Heston, Christian Bale, and even Mel Brooks. Can I get some Mel Brooks fans <laughs> to represent in church today? Thank you. Yes. The 20 Commandments. <laughs> I mean, Ten Commandments, Um, (laughs) classic scene. So you might know a few uh, highlights from the biblical Moses. Uh, You might remember him as the person that led the Israelites uh, out of slavery in Egypt, the one who split the Red Sea or brought the Ten Commandments down from Mount Sinai. But before we jump into the story of the life of Moses from birth to death, we need some context. I don't want to start in the middle of the story, so, here's what we're going to do today. We're going to answer three questions. Number one, what is the book of Exodus? Number two, who are the Jewish people? Why are we even talking about them? And why, why are we talking about them over and above other people? How did these people come into being? And number three, why are they in this predicament? How do they become enslaved to the Egyptian people? And why do they even need a Moses? to rescue them from that slavery. And then, as we always do, we're going to stop and we're going to kind of roll those ideas up into like our day and time. So let's jump in. You guys ready? What is Exodus? first two are going to go really quick. I didn't even ask you to fill in here. So I've already given you the answers here. The book of Exodus, number one, Exodus means departure or going out. So this book, Exodus, captures the departure or the going out of the people of Israel, from Egypt. And now, when we say Exodus, it's become synonymous with that event. Number two, Exodus is one of the five books of Moses, uh, referred to as the Pentateuch by Christians and the Torah by Jews. So whether you're coming at the f- these first five books in your Old Testament as a Christian or Jew, the five are a package. In fact, it's much better to think of These books as chapters of one story, five chapters to one story, rather than five different books because they're so integrated with each other. And the third thing I want to point out about the book of Exodus, I'm going to spend a little more time on here. Exodus is proven to be extremely reliable by the historical and archaeological record. So we're going to talk a little bit about the reliability of this book. The Bible, you know, is one of the most well-preserved and documented of all ancient texts. And I would add also the most scrutinized, yet it, is, it has stood the test of time. And that, uh, that is definitely the case when it comes to this specific book, Exodus. Let's talk about its historical timeline. What we know about the history of this era is just before this period, Moses won. Here he is up on the screen, uh, ruled as the Pharaoh, and the Egyptians had thrown off their oppressors, the Hyksos, and the Hyksos were called that by the Egyptians. It means rulers of foreign lands. They had taken over Egypt and ruled over the Egyptians for about a hundred years. They were known as great warriors of that time, um, and they, they're credited with the invention of the sickle sword, the horse and chariot, which are going to come into play, and the composite bow. And the history shows that When they invaded Egypt, they came right through Goshen, which is where the Israelites were living and thriving in this area that Pharaoh, a previous Pharaoh, had given to them. And you'll see why that's important in just a minute. Now, during the time of Exodus, Tutmosis II took power. This is Tutmosis' one son. And there he is in all his glory, and he looks pretty good for his age. He's 3,500 years old. Uh, By most, he is considered the Pharaoh of this period, the period of the Exodus, because number one, the timeline fits. Number two, his reign was prosperous, but suddenly collapsed. Since that was in the Bible story, that's when the, the Egyptian army totally collapses. And he's the only Pharaoh mummy to display cysts which you could see in his face, we don't need to re-look at that, it might make you not want to eat chicken wings today, or whatever you're having, um, that could be related to the biblical plagues, and uh, all of this I got a Wikipedia out of Wikipedia, so you know you can trust it, right? <laughs> now scholars debate just which Pharaoh uh, was in power during this period in Exodus, but one thing is clear. This is the only time in that period in which another power was a threat to Egypt. So what Pharaoh says in Exodus 1.10 makes perfect sense. Verse 10, he says, Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, that is the Israelites, or they will become even more numerous, and if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. Now remember that the Hyksos people, came right up through the land that the Israelites were living in, the land of Goshen. And so scholars talk about the fact that it's very likely that as they did that, they developed relationships with the people living there. And so this becomes a threat. So the, the historical type, timeline of events align perfectly with the Exodus account. But there's another reason why we can have confidence in this book, and it's the archaeological discoveries. The pharaohs during this time were fanatical builders, and during this particular period, they were using clay bricks instead of stone. And those bricks were being made out of clay and straw, dried in the sun, just as Exodus says. And here's a picture of one right up here. You can see the straw in it. And we also know that a tremendous amount of slave labor was used in the manufacture of those bricks. And one of the chief architects of building and one of the nobles of this period was Reckmeyer. And as as someone so important, he was buried in this really large tomb. And the walls of that tomb are decorated with hieroglyphics depicting all of his accomplishments. Here's a picture of one where you can see that in in his tomb, telling the story of his life and of all the construction, it's like, this is like... um, you know, honoring him and his accomplishments, you can see that slaves are working and making bricks. And in some of the hieroglyphics found on the walls of Reckmeyer's tomb, we also see club-wielding soldiers overseeing the work. So once again, we see how unique and reliable the Bible is. Every time the Bible gets questioned, eventually someone digs something up out of the ground and skeptics are silenced by the plain facts. It's unlike, the Bible's unlike any other book, especially when when you compare it with religious or spiritual texts. So if you're a person that is exploring faith right now, and you have all these questions about the accuracy of the Bible, the reliability of the Scriptures, there are things that we can fact-check in our Bibles. And every time we do that, through the historical or archaeological record, the Bible is proven reliable. So that when the Bible says things that we can't fact-check, Like John 3, 16, when Jesus said, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him might have eternal life. You can't fact check that, but you can trust it because everything else that can be is reliable. I hope that helps you. As we study Exodus, we're going to study this book and the story of Moses' life just as it tells it because it is the real deal. You guys still with me? All right, Exodus picks up where Genesis leaves off about 400 years later. So this we're going to answer question number two here. Who are the Jewish people? Where did they come from, the Israelites or the Hebrews? And, of course, Moses. And this this is where I'm going to ask you to do a little work, but these are really easy, fill in the blanks. Number one, Genesis provides the history of Israel, a people blessed by God so that they would bless others. If you remember, if you've read Genesis, uh, God made a covenant, which is a promise or a contract with a man named Abraham. And you can find that in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. It's known as the Abrahamic covenant. And Abraham is known as the father of the Jewish people. Remember, in, if you've ever worked in children's church, how many of you remember the story? Father Abraham had many sons. All together now, many sons. <laughs> father abraham okay that's enough just checking to see if you're still with me see god chose to bless abraham but for a specific purpose god chose to bless him so that all the people on earth genesis 1 through 12 1 through 3 says so that the people of the earth will be blessed through this family and god has always from abraham Throughout uh, the Bible, all of Abraham's children, as, they, uh, as the Israelites, to Jesus, it's always been about shining the light in the world who God is. And that is true of Moses here as well, which we're going to see. Now, from the get-go, Exodus 1 is drawing us back to Genesis. The NIV doesn't reflect it, but Gen- uh, Exodus 1-1 really in the context is, and these things happen. It's tied inextricably to Genesis. And the first words of Exodus 1 are almost an exact repetition of Genesis 46, 8, where the names of the sons of Jacob are listed. I'm going to put it up on the screen, Exodus 1, 1. These are the names, you could read this, and these are the names of the sons of Israel who went to Egypt with Jacob, each with his family, And Kristen did such a great job blowing through these names. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, Benjamin, Dan, and Naphtali, Gad, and Asher. And uh, what's happening here is the author is establishing the context of Exodus by using the names of these individuals. See, in America, we note our history by events, we think of time periods based on things that happened, like the Revolutionary War, the Civil War, the Great Depression. But the Old Testament marks time with names, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and important to the context of Exodus here, Joseph. So this is the next point. The Israelites followed Joseph into Egypt during a great famine. You can find that in Genesis 37 through 50. You can read the story, and if you want to know more about Joseph, You can go into our archives. We did a series called Joseph, Not So Average. So this period, uh, or Joseph's time, is 400 years prior to what we're reading in Exodus 1. And in fulfillment to Abraham's descendants, God sees to it that Jacob and his sons survive a terrible famine. And Joseph is the one that saves them, even though they had mistreated him. So Joseph ends up in Egypt, far from home, But his extraordinary character and skills promote him to the highest level under the Pharaoh of that day. And so he was able to win the confidence of the Pharaoh so that he rewards Joseph by allowing his entire family to immigrate to Egypt. And when Joseph's father, Jacob, and all of his brothers arrive at the border of Egypt as foreigners the Egyptians don't stick them in some fenced-off refugee camp to ferret out a meager life as best they could. They're given chosen, like, like choice real estate, a prime slice of the Egyptian heartland in the region of the Nile Delta. So all the water just kind of flows out. This is a super fertile area, and uh, this is where they live and raise their families. So they lived a good life. The sons of Jacob thrive just as God promised. I mean a, a lot, which we will see in just a second. And that brings us to the third question we want to answer today. How is it that the Jewish people find themselves in this predicament? How did they go from thriving in a foreign land favored by Pharaoh to being enslaved? In Exodus 1, 6, it says that now Joseph and all his brothers and all that generation died. And then what else happened, according to verse 8? goes on, Then a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, came to power in Egypt. So a new king, to whom Joseph meant nothing, comes along. So 400 years later, Joseph is long gone, and many pharaohs have come and gone, and now their agreements and their relationship are forgotten. That's how they're going to find themselves here. So maybe some of our business people can relate to this. They say that all business is personal. Have you ever had a deal that was mutually beneficial with another company or a company that you serve, and a big part of that business relationship was relational? I mean, you may not have been the cheapest contract, Um, but you had the contract. You were good with that company because you had a good relationship with the CEO or with the owner of that company. Then that decision maker from that business uh, retires, or they go to another company, and now there's a new CEO in place, and they want to shop your work around now all of a sudden. And then you lost the account. Why? Because it's different players, different relationships. This new company doesn't know you the way the old leader of the company did. And that's what happened here. Joseph is long gone. There have been other Pharaohs. And over time, that memory and the relationship erodes. And now, 400 years later, a lot has changed. Verse 7 the Israelites were exceedingly fruitful, they multiplied greatly, increased in numbers, and became so numerous that the land was filled with them. See, up until this point, when, the, when, the, when these people are referred to, they're called a family. They're referred to, referred to by their family name. But here, they're a people. They're the Israelites. That's how prolific they've become in the last 400 years. And how does that affect Pharaoh. In verse 9, he says, look, he said to the people, the Israelites have become far too numerous for us. Come, we must deal shrewdly with them, or they will become even more numerous. And if war breaks out, they will join our enemies, fight against us, and leave the country. So the Hebrew people, these immigrants, were thriving so much that they became a threat to Egypt. So why are they a threat? Well, number one, their sheer numbers. estimated that in men alone, uh, they totaled about 600,000, which means and in total they could be 2 to 3 million people. Number two, the Egyptians had become resentful of the Israelites and their prosperity in, and, and in the way that they achieved it. The Egyptians were advanced. They, they established fine universities. They were wealthy. And these people that were primarily shepherds of sheep, which was the Israelites' business, family business, was too blue-collar for them. And obviously, they're good at building as well. And the Egyptians were building like crazy during this period, but they don't want to do the labor. They were above that. And then three, as mentioned prior in verse 10, they're a potential military threat. So obviously, you can see how all this adds up to resentment and even fear of what they could possibly do. They could take us over. So if you're Pharaoh, what's a Pharaoh to do? Well, number one, he burdens them physically and financially. He concocts a plan. Over time, they become more and more disadvantaged economically. Maybe at first, they're just excluded from the best jobs. You know, they start to have rules to say an immigrant can't hold that position. But we deny you that opportunity. You know, you're here for manual labor only. And pretty soon, that morphs into slavery, forced labor. And they're just eking out a living every day. And you know, the Egyptians, they're not concerned about this. They're actually resentful. And there's something dark about human beings when it comes to immigrants that we don't understand, and we can end up resenting them. And the Egyptians seem to receive joy in denying these people an equitable living. In verse 14, they say, they made their lives bitter with harsh labor and brick and mortar, and with all kinds of work in the fields. And all their harsh labor, the Egyptians work them ruthlessly. So, they really, if, if not enjoy the Israel, uh, treating the Israelites like this, they at least feel justified in what they're doing. And eventually that concern of these people turns to dread. They could mutiny. If we're invaded, they could join the other army. But here's the thing. It doesn't work. It doesn't work. The Israelites thrive under these harsh conditions because God was blessing them in spite of it, in keeping His promise to his people. So if you're Pharaoh, when all else fails, you got to come up you have to come up with some more strategies because this thing of holding them down is not working. So you can always try infanticide. And so Pharaoh institutes two strategies. You can read about it in verses 15 through 22, but here it is in summary. Number 1, let's secretly kill all the baby boys at birth. Now a male would be a military threat. But both men and women can do work. But only one can do so without being a threat. And at this time, there's no hospitals. There's no bougie obstetrics wing with a posh birthing center. They use midwives in homes to bring children into the world and it seems like Pharaoh wants to obscure what he's doing with male babies. He wants it to appear that they are stillborn. But what happens is there's two Hebrew women. They're listed here in the story, Shiprah and Pua, who oversee all the midwives of the Israelites. And they are really the unsung heroes of this part of the history, the nation of Israel. And they sidestep Pharaoh's plan. So then he steps it up a notch. He's got a backup plan that he thinks cannot be foiled. And so a strategy number two is he exercises brutal and blatant authority. And he decrees that all baby boys born to the Hebrews will be thrown into the Nile River, which would obviously mean that they would be drowned or devoured by crocodiles that could grow to 16 feet in this region. So can you imagine how horrific that would be for these Hebrew families, for that mom that has the baby ripped from her arms and thrown into the Nile River? Keep that in mind when God starts to bring his wrath upon the people of Egypt and upon Pharaoh. Now, some of this might be sounding familiar to you uh, when you think about Moses' birth, which we're going to get to next week. But this is a situation that the Israelites find themselves in because they're foreigners in a land that isn't their home. They're enslaved in backbreaking work that only keeps them fed. They have no control over any decision concerning them. Their lives mean nothing. They can be beaten, worked to death, or you can throw their children in the Nile without consequence. So if they stay, in this place, what is going to happen to them? What is their future? And this is why they need to leave. And this is why they need a Moses to lead them out of this situation. Now, I know you didn't come to church today for a history lesson, right? But you got one anyway. (laughs) But what does all this mean for you and me, like in, in modern times? I mean, aren't our lives so different today? I mean, before we talk about that, we have to ask ourselves a few questions. Why did all this happen, have to happen to Israelites? I mean, aren't they God's chosen people? I mean, didn't God love them? And if so, why are they experiencing all this trouble? I thought that God had promised to bless them, which he did, which is also part of the problem, right? Their problem. But why does God allow them to get into a position where they need to suffer and they need a Moses? Where was God when all this was happening? So here's the main point, I believe, for us today from chapter 1, that I think not only is going to help us understand Moses better and what happens in this book, but it's going to help us today and tomorrow, like on Monday after the Dolphins win the Super Bowl. (laughs) It's going to be a miracle. (laughs) See, here's the main idea. God didn't just want to get his people out of Egypt. He wanted to get the Egypt out of his people. God didn't just want to get his people out of Egypt. He wanted to get the Egypt out of his people. And you say, okay, Brett, what does that mean? Well, I'm really glad you asked, because that's what I'm going to talk about for the next 15 minutes. God never wanted his people to sink their roots in Egypt. This is not their home. But the truth of the matter is they'd gotten quite comfortable over the centuries in Egypt. And for many years, they had safety, they had security, they had food and jobs. And they weren't going anywhere, much less out into the desert. And they loved Egypt. Now, How do I know that? Well, we're going to see that when they enter into the wilderness, every time something goes wrong, and it will, and every time it got hard, which it did, what do they say? They say, remember how great it was in Egypt? You guys remember that? Let's kill Moses and go back to Egypt. You're going to see that come up in the story over and over again. Sometimes God brings trouble because he wants to move us. Sometimes God brings trouble because he wants to move us. God wanted to uproot them. And I think they're ready to be uprooted now. He wanted them to long for something better than they had, to want what he wanted for them. The ultimate fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham's children And what they wanted depended on them not being in Egypt, but being in a place that God had made for them, Canaan. They wanted to have God's blessing. For many years, though, they wanted to have it in Egypt. So what they're experiencing right now is not because God hates them, but it's because He loves them, and He wants to move them. Now, I'm not the first Bible scholar, in fact, you can't even put me in that category. I'm not the first to identify Egypt as a picture of a life of sin, of a life far from God, alienated from God, a life of bondage. Remember, the Apostle Paul said, we become slaves to sin, and that, that is all part of the picture of people who would have heard that for the first time from the Apostle Paul. They would equate it with this period in in Exodus. And I wonder, like you don't need to raise your hand, but how many of us would say we became a Christian or we took our first steps toward God or our first steps back to God because we were sick of where we were. Maybe not the the exact geographical location, but the situation we were in. You lived a certain way, and you were happy for a time period, but eventually you grew tired of that life that you were in. You got tired of the emptiness of the party life, or you grew sick and tired of the merry-go-round of constant sexual encounters that had no meaning or lasting relationship, or the drugs you used, were starting to use you. Or you grew tired of all the relationships that you seemed to grenade in your brokenness or others. You grew tired of that empty, kind of purposeless feeling you had, or you were exhausted by the constant bitterness in your marriage or infidelity. Or maybe you just started seeing the the results of your life repeated in your children. And sometimes we can see the results of our choices in our children more than we can in ourselves. And you realize something needs to change. If that's where you are right now, if you're just kind of sick of it all, can you consider the idea that maybe God is making you sick of it? The trouble you're experiencing is because God wants to move you. He wants to move you out of your situation because you're not where he designed you to be. And he's giving you a little motivation to see that and to make a change. Maybe you're you're starting to get a longing for where God wants you to be. Something has awakened in you or reawakened that makes you think more about his will and his plan and his good favor in your life a place where you'll flourish and it's not in the proverbial egypt that you've been in and again i was like i i you don't don't raise your hand but god has god ever motivated you or moved you to make a change through pain or trouble he has me i mean sometimes he moves us on he 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 that kind of unrest in our souls gives us the courage to finally break that toxic relationship. Or maybe you got so tired of being in debt that you signed up for Bob's FPU class. (laughs) Did someone say good luck? Oh, good plug, okay. (laughs) Just saying, that's Bob right there, wave your hand, Bob, okay. Maybe you got so weary of the battles in your marriage that you started going to counseling. Something that you never thought that you would do. Maybe you had a relationship with God, but after a while, for whatever reason, you wandered away, and you really started taking your relationship with God for granted. And then your life started to unravel. And God moved you back closer to Him and back in church. See, sometimes God uses trouble to move us. It's a way of moving us along. But sometimes God brings trouble because he wants to move something out of us. You get that? Sometimes God brings trouble because he wants to move something out of us. Sometimes comfort or pleasure or convenience it can take over our hearts. We can be in the right place, but our hearts are not. And sometimes God has to break the bondage of our hearts from the things of this world. Because our hearts, like, they're just prone to make a home in Egypt. And our heart's affection can be in temporary things, in earthly things, in the the cultural values and ideologies of the day or in the things that we think that we should pursue or not pursue. And sometimes life can be so good that our hearts can't even long for heaven anymore. Heaven seems like a bad place to go because life is so good here. And we find ourselves replacing all of our treasure here on earth, not in heaven, and our confidence in human leaders more than our heavenly Father. Or We worship our convenience and our pleasure. And I'm so comfortable, and my life decisions become I'm so comfortable that my life decisions become more about maintaining that, maintaining my comfort and convenience than the mission and calling God has given me. Sometimes it's like our obedience to God and following God wholeheartedly brings us into a place of blessing, but it but it turns into, like, in order to stay in that place of blessing, we have to live disobediently. You see, the Israelites were in spiritual bondage long before they were in literal bondage. God wants us to be in the world but not of the world. Paul wrote in Colossians 3, 2, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. God wants His people to, as the writer of Hebrews said in Hebrews eleven fifteen, to long for a better country. A heavenly one. That doesn't mean I just always just think about heaven and how wonderful it's going to be and I miss everything that's happening here. It's just like my heart is in the place that God's heart is. I don't know about you, but I've found myself in places before where my life is so good that I don't really need God anymore. It's like God's blessing on my life caused my heart to love the blessings more than the blesser. And sometimes we can get really comfortable. Really comfortable and then we go through a period where those comforts diminish or they disappear and then we resent God. The one who gave us all of that in the first place. And then he starts to pull back some of those things and we get mad at him. Rather than letting it serve as a wake up call that we're far too attached to this world. You know, one of the benefits of going to Bible college is they make you read books that you would never read normally. And, like, I, I I like we've got a few missionary kind of people in our church, and if I say this name, you're going to be, oh, yeah, Hudson Taylor. Can I? There's a couple of Hudson Taylor fans in here. The rest of you are like, who's that? Like, does he play for the Eagles? I don't know. But you should read the life story of Hudson Taylor. He was a missionary for 51 years to China in the late 1800s. And here's something that he wrote. It doesn't matter how great the pressure is. What really matters is where the pressure lies. Whether it comes between you and God or presses you nearer to his heart. Does that make sense? There's incredible pressure on Christians today, both from without and from within. And in frustration, we see many, particularly of the younger generation. I'm talking to you. I know a lot of you, almost everyone in here is younger than me, but just imagine that I'm younger. In frustration, people are deconstructing, as it's called. They're dismantling their faith but they're not reassembling it. They're walking away from God. And I want to assure you that, that whatever you see going on today, God has not abandoned the world or his people. And I believe that he is working every bit as much today as he ever has. And I, I believe that there's no question at all that you and I are here at this time, born into this particular area era, this junction of history, what's going on in our world and even in our own community for a reason. It's no accident that you are right where you are right now, in your career, in your family life, in your home, and what is happening in the Christian world today. And whatever whatever generation you're of, whatever situation you're in, God is looking for people who will yield their hearts to him And to seize the day for His glory, He's looking for a person who is holy, who their heart is wholly under the control of Jesus, and will abandon themselves to what He is doing in the world today. And I know, like me, you know, like I'm very passionate about my faith. I'm definitely not perfect. We don't need to say amen there. (laughs) But like me, you you feel frustrated at times. You feel blocked. You feel unqualified to do anything about it, and you feel powerless. And in some respect, it can feel like slavery. It can feel like we're a slave to what is happening today, to the one or the other, and there's just nothing we can do about it. And you may look around right now and wonder just how much more the, the world can become hostile to Christians, or how much more unchristian Christians can become. And I believe that is exactly the situation. I think think we have very similar parallels to what is going on in Exodus chapter 1. I think we're living in many ways in very similar times to the world that Moses and his people lived in 3,500 years ago. And in many ways, they're just like us. God has to work on them a lot, as He does you and me. And when He works on us, it's not going to be easy. It's going to be hard. It's not going to be comfortable. It's going to be painful. But what God, is, what God was doing there 3,500 years ago, and what I think He can do in our lives today, is He can create a new exodus of the heart and the people that name the name of Jesus. And so you're going to see over these next many, many weeks, we're going to be in Moses' life for quite some time. You're going to see that through the struggle, through the things that no one would ever sign up for, that God is going to get Moses' heart. And he will prepare him through that struggle. And he will prepare his people for the life that God has for them. And in spite of all the flaws that they have and all the pressure that God brings in their lives will move their hearts closer to Him. And Moses becomes the man for the moment. He doesn't start off that way, but God is going to turn him into that, and that's my prayer for us. I can't wait to discover the story of his life with you.